Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with possibly the most generous, kindest, and most famous person on earth, Santa Claus. That's right, Santa Claus. You know, it's that time of year, and we decided we would have a special edition of Off Camera this time around, and we invited a very special guest, and I'm very excited to have him on, but I'm also excited to bring to you some of the best clips that we've done over the last six years at Off Camera. We've had a lot of guests on here, 220 to be exact, and we opened up the archives this week, and everyone here on staff at Off Camera went through the archives and picked their favorite clips, clips that either gave us a little bit of wisdom or made us stop and think about our parents or just made us see the world in the way we hadn't seen. And for me, these clips represent the best of what this show can do. And we just had a fun time going down memory lane and pulling little bits of history from the show. And in this show, we're going to share them with you. It's our holiday gift to all the listeners. And I hope you enjoy it. I want you to know we also obviously have a television show and this one might be a good one to tune into if you haven't yet because there are some surprises waiting for you on the TV show that just can't be duplicated on a podcast. But anyway, I'm very excited to present our first ever year-in wrap-up best of off-camera show. We're still working on the title, but the rest of the show is pretty well put together. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Santa. Well, hey, Sam. Thanks for doing our year-end wrap-up show. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Frankly, I was surprised we booked you. I mean, isn't this your busy time of year? Well, sure, but this is off-camera. Major said I couldn't possibly miss the biggest, most important show on television. A little Santa sarcasm. <laughs> well, listen, I'm a big fan of yours. I've loved your work since I was a kid. But I have to ask you straight off, when I was 13, I definitely had a year that did not put me on the naughty list. So... Where the hell's that bike I asked for? Well, we can get into that. But first, it's so cold and empty and barren in here. I know you're being artsy, but do you think I could bring in just a little bit of Christmas spirit? Well, I don't know if we have the time. Watch this. Whoa. Santa. That's great. How did you do that? Santa? Santa? He's gone, Nate. I didn't even get a chance to ask him how he gets down the chimney. Or why so many of his packages come in Amazon boxes. Oh, he left a note. Let's see what he says. Dear Sam, have a great year in show. Sorry I couldn't stay. I have to deliver a big sack of coal to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Your fan, Santa. Well, what can I say, folks? He's a busy man. Welcome to the off-camera holiday year-end wrap-up show. We're still working on the title. But we've done over 220 episodes of off-camera, and throughout that time, there are certain moments that have stuck in my mind for one reason or another. So I thought it'd be fun to open up the archives and go through and find the moments that really define what this show is to me. So let's take a little trip down memory lane through some of my favorite moments on off-camera. You know, when I started this show, one of the things I was most fascinated about was process. You know, I love knowing how the sausage is made, metaphorically. 
I don't have any interest in knowing how actual sausage is made, but I love getting a peek behind the curtain at how an artist does what they do, the work that nobody sees, the work that is supposed to remain invisible, but is really, to me, one of the most fascinating parts. So let's look at some clips of artists talking about their own process and the methods that they've come up with that enable them to do their craft at the highest level. So I went and saw Nightcrawler in the theater and, and I recently saw Southpaw and the same question was on my mind when I left the theater both times, which was, I think this guy might be insane. <laughs> Somebody said that to me the other day. They were like, is he insane? Like, <laughs> he must be crazy. Yeah. Like, my preparation for something like Southpaw was five months around boxers all the time, going to every fight that I could, um, researching the history of what my character had gone through, going to orphanages and, and talking to people in the system and being there and picking up that energy. Like, picking it all up and trying to sort of exist in it and then putting that into, after enough time, you know, like, I feel like almost like your molecular structure changes a little bit, oh. and then you put that onto the screen. And I find joy in that process. I think there's part of it in me where I kind of recognize the absurdity of what I'm doing, and the only way that I can move past the absurdity of it is to commit to it in a place where no one can say that it's absurd anymore. My research involved going to a butcher on La Brea and practicing with my box, uh, my box cutter. <laughs> Right, for the big slash. For the big slash, yeah. Meals. I mean, hell yeah, I went down and sewed some pig carcasses and, and slashed them with deep, you know, deep intensity, not realizing that it was one of these kind of open-plan, trendy new butchers, and there were people lining up for their coffees watching me, you know. I know people come up to me and say, you know, hey, man, I want to I want to do what you I want to be an actor, and I want, how can I be an actor? And I go, do you want to be an actor, or do you want to be a star or a celebrity? Or, like, well, I want to be on, I want to, I'm like, are you acting right now? Are you in anything? Are you in plays? Are you auditioning for plays? Do you read plays? Are you yeah. reading scripts? That's all working. That's all doing acting work. Now, you know, yes, maybe you're not on a TV show or somebody hasn't put you in a film, but if you think that's the only way acting happens, it's probably going to be one or two things are going to happen. You're never going to get that shot, or you're going to get that shot, and then very quickly they're going to see that you're this deep and you have nothing to, to bring to the game. I wanted to ask, at what point in the process, your self-critic rears its head the most. Whenever I let him out of the cage, like it's my job to keep him chained up for a good lo as long as I possibly can. Uh, because if not, he'll get in there and start rustling the papers before I've even got anything written on him. Do you ever wonder if you've thrown away some really good things if, if you just did? No, I like not being completely insane. <laughs> no, that, that's the definition of insane. That would drive me nuts. The difference between good and great is like one twist of the screw, but it's the hardest one to do. Oh, it's, yeah. it's so, so much rehearsal, so much thought needs to go into the the tiniest gesture. It's like a sailboat. If the sheet catches wind, every true moment, every beautiful thing, every honest thought puts um, wind in the sail. And every fake moment, and every cheat, and every lie is a little tear. You go to, those, to that space to, I would say, to especially leave your tricks, leave your knowings, leave your tendencies out of the picture. 
So when you go next to work, you don't do the same over and over and over and over. Right. Don't be fake. Don't lie. Don't pretend. Don't manipulate. Just let's try to be as honest as we can when we do a role. And that's hard because it's hard to be honest in life. I'm here just to learn how to fuck it up and rise from the ruins <laughs> with the only flag of uh, honesty. Honesty. Honesty means to really, yeah, destroy everything that you know in order to be more present and that's why we love it and we are, we are so hooked into it because it, it may be the only time in the day where we are honest. <laughs> I mean I got a Dora the Explorer doll which I uh, from CVS and and um, you know and, and I tied her to a sort of six foot stake to kind of be the size of Neil Patrick Harris and then I um, you know rehearsed out in the in the yard of the of the house I'd rented which I realized afterwards is 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 overlooked by many other properties so what people thought I were doing I was doing if they happened to be you know on their balcony at that that uh, at that time and saw you know me rolling around looking like I was I, I mean I, goodness knows I mean hump and then murder Dorothy's you know, one of the things I'm always curious about is that moment when someone discovers what it is they're supposed to do with their life. And, you know, these careers are high stakes. And at best, it's pressure. And sometimes at worst, it can be a debilitating fear that takes over when you realize you're at that fulcrum where everything can go south or you have that life-changing moment and your career is born. Here are some clips that illustrate that moment. I remember the first time I was about to walk on stage for the first time, and I thought I was going to die. Really? Yeah, I literally thought my body was going to, uh, like, um, burst into flames. Like, what did that flames. feel like? Did it feel like, like you, were, like, you like, were sick? No, no it, was, it was just like, it was just so much heat. It was just too much heat. I thought I was going to burst into flames. And I remember walking up and down the south bank of the River Thames in London, and the reality sinking in. And it comes back to my dad. My dad was going to be in the audience, and he just like helped me to go to drama school. And he wanted he was going to see if his investment paid off, and all, you know, all this stuff. Not only that, but like everyone, all the all my friends were going to be there. All drama schools from around the country. And I, I literally thought I was going to die. I, I literally was like, if I walk onto that stage, I'm going to die. I cannot do it. There is no way I can do it. I'm a fraud. I have nothing to offer. There is. It's. 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 That was the first feeling I had. Wow. It was like uh, so there was something happened. Something happened, and I don't want to. I don't want to call it. I don't. I don't. I, I, it's mysterious. But it was. It was like everything shifted inside me, and I and I realized that I actually had. If I didn't do it, I would die. If I didn't go on stage, I would die. That's that was what actually was happening. That this was actually uh, saving my life. At some point, did a practical voice start to rear its head in you of maybe I shouldn't be here? Absolutely. It did? Absolutely. A voice was sure that this is not for you. I was doing um, an audition for I had an audition for Blue Bloods. I was late for it um, which is unheard of in the actor audition world and I had a really good audition I remember and I left the room and immediately started crying because I'd been on a zillion auditions that summer for only film and television and I couldn't find the way in and didn't feel like there was anyone trying to usher me in either 
And I said to myself, Uzo, this is not for you. This is God and the universe telling you that this is not for you. You are not, so you're trying to get into something that is not yours. And you need to quit. And I was like, prayed on that train ride. And I was like, God, if you can figure out a way for me to go back to school, become a lawyer, I will go. My mom had worked in investment banking for a period before she met my dad. And I think I kind of went down that road and I, I studied economics in school and I didn't, I like, I liked economics in that like, I liked math. Um, I didn't understand that it's real world application banking was something very different, you know? <laughs> so then when I went to go work at a bank, I was like, this And is not just a bank, but sort of the pinnacle bank <laughs> yeah, of, yeah. of evil controlling and efficient wealth building, yes, Goldman yeah. Sachs, right? Yeah, I went, I, and I think I found myself there and I was like, oh, this is so different from um, how I imagined it when I was in college, you know, late at night in the library, <laughs> like struggling with some proof. But then when I was at a bank, and they're just like, here's your cubicle, here's your computer, your job is to like stay awake as many hours as you can and be accurate, you know, to the third decimal place, go. I think I just, speaking of mortality, I think I had a moment there where I was just like, I'm gonna die, and is this what I wanna do, like day to day? Goldman Sachs was your NDE. Oh my God, yes. I think my, my, I was just thinking to myself, I'm gonna, my therapist would love that. <laughs> like, yeah. It was your near-death right. experience. Yeah. And then I was also just sad, you know, like I would go home from work and sometimes just cry. And it wasn't just like a few tears. It was the kind of existential crying of like, it was heartbreak. I was, heart, I was heartbroken that, y you brought this up earlier, the idea of like, when does a kid lose their imagination? When do they let go of that wild, unbridled thing and become the broken in horse? That was the moment for me. I remember seeing a doctor, telling the doctor that I was having these like waves of sadness, and he was just like, you're depressed, here's a prescription for Paxil. I remember filling the prescription, and it was sitting on my nightstand, and I would come home and be so sad, and I would look at that bottle, and I would think, something is wrong here. If like I'm being told, like I'm doing something that's making me not feel good, and I'm being told that the answer is to just like pop one of these pills. To make the thing To make the thing palatable. go palatable. The doctor's answer, the system's answer was, well, there are ways to medicate this so that you don't feel your body's gut reaction. You just go with what your mind is saying, which is like, if I do this job, I know exactly how much money I'll be making in two years, how much money I'll make in five years, probably how much I'll make in 10. Who I'll date, who I'll marry, who I'll where date, I'll live. 100%, what are the zip codes? And I was like reaching a place of, of dysfunction and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to take the medication. And that was the moment that I was like, I was just like, I can't, I have to find a different thing. You know, one of the things that almost every guest on Off Camera has in common is that they've all had to go through the audition process. Even Robert Downey had to audition for Iron Man. And I find that fascinating because this idea that you have to keep proving yourself over and over again just to be able to work is sort of at the heart of every creative person's experience. 
So here are some of my favorite stories from over the years of auditions. Often with like female characters, like especially, I just particularly like in auditions, it's always like she breaks down in like the first. And that's know? the scene they pick for the audition, <laughs> right? And it's like, oh my god, do the guys have to do this? No, you know, it's always like you got to like, and it's always crying, or she's got her top off, or like, you know, it's like <laughs> the like the classic hits of what the female character's doing, and then they make you learn, you know. 30 pages of dialogue and then you get there and they go, we're just going to do the first scene. So it's just the first two pages. And you've meanwhile been like slaving for five days, learning it, acting coach, voice coach, like doing all your prep right. work. And then you get in and they're like, it's just the first two pages. Don't it's worry. that first scene when she's yeah. in her bikini. Yeah, just the one in the bikini when you're making out. Yeah. You don't have to make out. You can just take your top off. But if you want to make out, then <laughs> the writer's here. <laughs> you described in one interview a moment that occurred right before you had to go on stage and give an audition. And oh, oh, for, for, for Saturday Night Center. Live. Yeah. And you're standing right behind the stage door and you've got all these portraits of the yeah. great Saturday Night Live titans. Yeah, that's one of those moments where you, you're, I mean, I don't know if you've ever literally been weak in the knees, but I literally felt like my knees were going to buckle. You're that nervous. Really? Yeah, it's, it's as if you're a, a paratrooper, you know, about to jump out the plane, uh, and you're trying to remember what you're going to do. You're just pacing. You're hearing the, the, the person on stage doing their audition, so you're trying to block that out. And then, uh, then the doors just open, and they're like, well, yeah, come on. And it's like, okay, I, I just have to do this now. Talking about like self-loathing, I feel like it's only when someone insults me or makes me feel very small that I'm like, oh, no, you're wrong. Like when someone compliments me, I'm like, no, they don't. No, I'm terrible. They don't even know the truth. And when someone insults me, like if you get audition feedback, like uh, like if someone's like, you're so beautiful inside, I'm like, no, disgusting. But if I get audition feedback where they're like, they want to go prettier, I'm like, fuck you. Tell me how that room was when you, when you walked in for the audition. Have I never told you the story? That's no. crazy. No. So I walked in and there's like six gyms sitting on this bench and it is like a very surreal thing where you're like, you guys all kind of look like me and this is weird. But like they went in one by one and I'll never forget there was like six of them and I was the seventh one and Six people went in, and then the casting director came out and said, um, we're going to take a lunch break. And again, knowing that I had no power or anything, I was like, really? You can't? Not one more? Like, this is, like, now that's just weird. It's going to break everything. And so, sure enough, just like 40 people leave the casting office and go get sandwiches and salads. I'm sitting on this bench. And they come back, and this guy sits in front of me with his salad, and people are coming in and out. And he goes, are you nervous? And I was like... You know, not really. I mean, you either get these things or you don't. But what I'm really nervous about is this show. I mean, I just, I love the British show so much. And just Americans have a tendency to just really screw these opportunities up. And like, I, I just, I don't know how I'll live with myself if they screw this show up and ruin it for me. And he's like, my name's Greg Daniels. I'm the executive producer. And I was like, Ugh. like, I actually threw up in my mouth and was like, I got to go outside. I went outside and called my manager and was like, maybe I just don't even go in. Like, maybe, like, what am I going to do? He was like, well, now you got to go in. But you could tell his vibe was like, what are you thinking? And I went into the room and everyone was laughing at me because I was such a moron. 
and everybody was like, is this the uh, jackass that told you that the show's gonna be ruined? Go for it, kid. Gradually, I think after the, the Wire, like, after that, on my auditions, I, I started throwing my sides away um, after I left out, you know? Um, first audition, I would go in there, and I would throw them away. When I, as soon as I left, as soon as I walked out the door, I'll find a trash immediately, and I'll, I'll, I'll look for one, throw them away. I left it all in the room. I'm walking out, hands clean. Let me just move on to the next thing. It's the only way I can kind of disconnect myself from the audition, from the role, and, and just forget about it and move on. You still do that now? Yeah, for sure. Although you probably don't have to audition, audition much anymore I'm, now. I'm auditioning a, a little less, but... <laughs> One of my favorite things on this show is when a guest slips into character or spontaneously does an impression. I never want to ask for it because I feel like off-camera is a place where people can just be themselves and I'm not asking them to perform or entertain. But when it happens, I'm enthralled because it's such a glimpse into their talent and their ability and their natural desire to play. So here are some examples of impressions and characters from over the years on the show, including Hank Azaria discovering the voice of Mo the Bartender on The Simpsons. I was doing a play at the time in Hollywood where I was imitating Al Pacino. Okay. Early Al Pacino. Right. This Al Pacino, the high-pitched, you know, I'm dying here. Yeah. I did that voice, and they liked it, but they said, well, we want the voice to be gravelly. So if you take Al Pacino from Dog Day Afternoon and you make it gravelly, you get something approaching motor bartender. You know, my, for my Phil Hoffman, I, I did this, and he was doing a monologue as Truman Capote. Uh, but instead, he was doing dialogue for Mission Impossible 3. You, you have a wife, Ethan, or girlfriend. I'm going to hurt her. I'm going to hurt you in front of her. And then instead... <laughs> you have a wife, Ethan, or girlfriend. I'm going to hurt her. I've never done impressions. I, I have some respect for people who do them. Um, it, it's a skill, I guess, if you want to develop that skill. You see how we have contempt for things that are out of our reach? I guess I'm not a really good impressionist. So they all suck. <laughs> it's all garbage unless I have a sense of it. I was backstage at SNL and I'm like, my head's spinning and I'm like, can I get some coffee? <laughs> Paul McCartney's next to me. And Paul McCartney's like, oh, Joe, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're nervous. So no, you drink coffee, it's just gonna make it worse. You should have some water. Or maybe a little tea, maybe. And I was like, okay, Paul McCartney. <laughs> if you'll indulge me, can we say goodbye as a Michael Caine goodbye? Sure, yeah. All right. I've enjoyed it very much. I like the way you ask questions. You're very direct. And sometimes you ask questions very loudly indeed. And I, and I appreciate that. You know, I'm continually surprised by how some of the greatest artists in the world still suffer from bouts of anxiety, stage fright, and insecurity. You know, it's heartening in a weird way to find out that no matter how successful you become, that fear never really abates. But what I've learned from doing this show is that you better make peace with anxiety if you're going to be an artist because no amount of success guarantees that you can sleep at night. Here are some of the best and brightest talking about how they deal with their anxiety. So they were doing this tribute to Elliot Smith at Largo. Right. And Flanny, he says, come on down and sing a song. I know, I, we know you love Elliot. And I was like, oh, shit, okay. The thing is, his songs are not funny. You know, they're, they're, they're pretty sincere. But anyways, I was like, I love it. I love him. Which song? Say Yes. They wanted me to do Say Yes. I'm doing Say Yes. And so I 
rehearsed it in my car hours, hours and hours of trying to memorize it, writing it down. I did everything in my power. And then it was my turn to do Say Yes, and I went out there and I'm, I'm in love with the world through the eyes of a girl. And then something, you, your brain freezes up when it gets to that part where you're supposed, you know the line, you, you think that thing it was like, what if I don't say the right line? What if I don't remember the line that's coming next and forget about it? And, and so I beefed it and I said, sorry everyone, we're gonna start from the beginning. I'm in love with the world. And we got to the part again, fucked it up again. And, and this Sorry, is not folks. a joke, it's Now serious. there's a, some titters in the audience. Sorry, we're doing it again. Elliot Smith's sister is there. I think he had some other family. It was like, no, you gotta get it right. This is like, it's almost like a memorial service. Right. It's a holy time. Everyone in the crowd worships fucking Elliot Smith. And uh, take it from the top. I swear to God, we did it like eight times. I couldn't get through. And then the ninth time, I made it through the song. And everyone just erupted in applause and cheering because I made it through. That, to a small extent, it's like half the time when you know someone's name, but you're just afraid to deploy it on the 1% chance you have it wrong. And you go, hey. And they know you don't know. Dude, I've done it to the point where it's like, there's something wrong with my brain. Like, introducing my dad one time, I was like, this is... uh, (laughs) Because the fear, it freezes, doesn't matter. And you know the weird thing, my dad's name is Thomas and my name is Thomas. I'm not really Jack Black, I'm Thomas Jacob Black. Right. But I couldn't remember Thomas, it's my name. I forgot you Just fucking. <laughs> That's an occupational hazard in this, in this business, but in this world, in the, in the business of being human, you know. It is, is really... rating yourself by people's reactions to you. Yes, I had a good friend once tell me, don't ever confuse your self-worth with your ability to get a job, not get a job, or like how much money you're being paid, or you know, your self-worth, your value, you know, is not being dictated to you by whether or not I get an acting job or don't get an acting job. It doesn't make me less valuable as a person. I have been in this situation now where at least a handful of times where someone has come in and been so incredibly fantastic, but not right for the part. And I, I never used to believe that because I always thought, well, if that, you know, you'd get feedback. Every once in a while, we get feedback like, you were the best person they saw today, but they're not going to go with you. They're going to go with blah. And I'm like, I don't know how to reconcile that of doing the best work of the day but not getting the job. I thought, so it's not a meritocracy. You learn that very quickly, you know. It's a business. Right. So I think if there's a way you can learn that you're, I'm still the same actress I was when I wasn't getting hired. Had nothing ever happened for me the way it's happened for me, wouldn't mean that I weren't of value and that I didn't have something to contribute artistically. That's the trapping of all of this stuff in terms of the success or lack thereof is, is you end up feeling like when you're successful, you're like, oh yeah, I deserve this. As humans, we do not have an accurate system for measuring self-worth. Oh my so, God, yeah. Like there's no way So you do to... naturally look to other people to be like, yeah. Right, well, how else like, are you going to okay. do it? As opposed to looking in the mirror and going, I like what I see. I right. don't care what that person says. I don't care what that person thinks. These are my favorite shoes. But These if you go my, out you know to auditions I mean? every day for six months and you absolutely feel great about yourself and you hear no every day, very Almost hard to impulsive. look in your mirror. Herculean uh, yeah. effort and I don't know that it, I don't, you know, there are dents made for sure in the very soft part of your soul and psyche that, that makes it hard to continue to, you know, it's hard. 
It's hard. It's not for the faint of heart being a person. I'm not talking about just being an actor. It's not, it's not for the faint of heart being a person. It's hard. I had never been to drama school. That was the other thing that was always playing at the back of my mind. It still does, that I felt like I had this terrible imposter syndrome because I, really? I hadn't trained and I'd, I'd never been taught how to improvise or any of these things. And, and, and all these phrases like being in the moment, you know, these things that actors would talk about being in the moment, would, that was just, would, would just strike terror into my heart because I was just, I didn't really understand what they meant by being in the moment. I didn't know what that meant. I couldn't even decipher what that meant. And I felt like I was probably never going to know what it was like to be in the moment because I wasn't, I was a bit of a fraud. But I still have the feeling. I mean, I still have the feeling. I mean, I still walk onto a set and every day I'm expecting someone to come and tap me on the shoulder and tell me it's time to leave and escort me out. I did Elliot Spitzer once on a cold open and I don't, I've never, I, I got so nervous doing that that when it ended the next day, I got, I mean, I had a fever, chills, like my whole body broke down and I was sick for like a week because I, I got so just, my defenses were up the whole week doing it and I just, I just didn't enjoy it. If you watch me, I'll be like doing something and I'm, I, I don't know what to do with this hand. <laughs> it's like all the inner, all my nervous energy goes right up into this arm and I'm just going like this. So that was the thing with Stefan was that I could, I could talk slow and put my hand over my mouth, which is kind of what I want to do. And I remember... I always thought I, you were just hiding when you were laughing. No, that's kind of what I just kind of want to do is just cover my face for some reason. I remember I did an update feature to John Malkovich or Carville and I had my hand in front of my face the entire time. I was doing it, and I remember Alex Bays going, dude, you gotta put your hand down. I can't, no one can see your face, and you're like talking down, and then I was like, I know, I'm just nervous. I'll, I'll work on it, you know. Are you hard on yourself when something doesn't work? Yeah, of course, because who else's job was it to get it right? But it's a fascinating process, and I've gotten better and better at it, and, um, and, and a little bit less tough on myself, whereas in the beginning, the editing room was where I was really just wanted to slip my wrists because it was just like, who's directing this frickin' movie? Uh, what, really? That's where the, that's, you didn't do another take? You know, it's just like, God damn it, what asshole told the actor to do that? Me, I'm the asshole that told the actor to do it, play it that way. And it's, it's like the most honest thing about directing because sometimes, sometimes directing does, you know, it does make you feel stupid. <laughs> do you think that's a curse kind of that maybe to be good? at this sort of weird profession. Mm -hmm. You sort of have to have that fear as a motivator. It feels such a kind of natural tick within me. That, I, that Or maybe that's, that's your personality trait that... Uh, well, that's what I mean, yeah. I yeah. think that's it. I think, I think it's just with it. I think that's what my DNA prescribes, really. Does that, that, does that voice ever get the upper hand? Oh, it's a constant battle, yeah. I, yeah, I'd say it does, yeah. It's a constant, it's a constant battle to kind of feel confident. Right. You, I think you feel it most keenly on stage because that's uh, because that's so in the moment. You know, you're, you you step out on stage and you're in front of an audience and it's and it's happening in that second. Right. You're very exposed for that sort of two three hours a night when you're out on the stage and that's where that's where I've I, I've struggled most keenly with a sort of little demon's voice in your head saying you can't do this you can't do this not only can't you do this you can't even it is impossible to remember a sequence of words and repeat them in front of a group of human beings. That's not something that you, your brain will start to convince you that that's, 
that's not something that it's possible for a human being to do. I'm talking about my brain like it's not connected to me, aren't I? Yeah. But like it's some sort of separate demon, that demon on your shoulder that will sort of pull the carpet. It's just always trying to pull the carpet from under you, always trying to set you up. I, I've been on stage kind of reciting lines that I know very well and at the same time composing the, the speech in my head where I'm going to have to turn to the audience and go, ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I, I'm, I'm so sorry. It turns out I can't do this anymore and I'm going to have to go and probably retire. So thank you very much for coming. Um, I'm sure we'll manage to refund your tickets. I'm going, I'm going off stage now to um, jump off a cliff. Uh, That's the exact definition of your brain undermining you. And I've played bands a lot in my life and it's the same thing with songs you've sung a hundred times. Right, right. And then you get to the beginning of the second verse and all, like just thinking, oh. could, I, could I forget this? It's, it's giving me you the heebie-jeebies just as you describe it. We've all seen the movie where the actor just looks terrified or aware Almost of all himself. actors are terrified, I gotta tell you. And if they aren't, they're drunk or they don't give a shit. Still, to this day, are you terrified? A little bit. I, what do you think that is? Like, what is, what's at the root of that terror? Because we aren't, we're so conditioned not to play and we're so conditioned not to, you know, to be loose and we're so conditioned to, we're so conditioned to having stuff mean. We're not, we're not comfortable with things that we can't quite explain. But those are usually the most beautiful things in a performance and the most beautiful things in any art. One of the things that blows me away in doing off-camera over the years is how honest people are willing to be in front of an audience of millions. You know, it's brave to sit there and tell people your darkest secrets or the things that made you most ashamed as a kid or the things that you struggle with. So here are a few clips that really show the human side of off-camera. And I'm grateful to these guests that they can be so honest and so vulnerable on camera. Off-camera. If someone bought into that idea of you just being this, this person trying to do good and having this sort of Mayberry-esque uh, upbringing, what would miss if we just bought into that story? Well, I struggled a lot with anxiety and depression. You did? Uh-huh. My mom sat me down when I was probably 18, and she said, if you start to feel like you are twisting things around you, and you start to feel like there is no sunlight around you, and you, you are paralyzed with fear, this is what it is, and here's how you can help yourself. And I've always had a really open and honest dialogue about that, especially with my mom, which I'm so grateful for. Because you have to be able to cope with it. I mean, I present this very cheery, bubbly person, yeah. but I also do a lot of work. I do a lot of introspective work, and I check in with myself when I need to exercise. And And I, you know, got on a prescription when I was really young to help with my anxiety and depression, and I still take it today, and I have no shame in that. Wow. Because my mom had said to me, if you start to feel this way, talk to your doctor, talk to a psychologist, see where how you want to help yourself. And if you do decide to go on a prescription to help yourself, understand that the world wants to shame you for that. But in the medical community, you would never deny a diabetic his insulin. Right, of course. Ever. 
But for some reason, when someone needs a serotonin inhibitor, they they're immediately crazy or something. And I don't know. It, it's a it's an, a very interesting double standard that I I I don't often have the ability to talk about, but I I certainly feel no shame about. I grew up with an alcoholic mother. I was very close to her. She was sweet to me, but very unhealthy. And I watched that decline. It was really hard, I have to say. And I did an intervention for her when I was 17, a failed intervention. A failed in- intervention. And I uh, worked at McDonald's with her. That's an interesting story. You she did, got fired with your mom. With my mom. She got fired from McDonald's, by the way. I drove her there. It was, I remember it to this day. I drove her in the afternoon. I thought she had enough coffee to be sober enough. And I miscalculated. So I really beat myself up over that. And she got fired. Well, but I imagine being back. a kid and having to mother your mother. Like, I have to say, it was, not, it was not an easy thing to no. do. It was not an easy thing to do. But um, I went in and I asked them to give her the job back. And they did not. So I had to quit. So I quit. So that was, I couldn't go into work once she had lost her job there. I mean, that's just going to be weird, right? Oh, my gosh. I'm surprised I survived. I used to put out cigarettes every night because she would smoke. She would smoke. She would sit in the living room with the, in the den without the lights on and linoleum floor. There were burnt marks all in the floor, holes in the couch. So I would get up at night and come in and be sure the cigarettes went out, were out. And there would be like cigarette ashtray and the cigarettes, two, several cigarettes with the whole ashes, you know? Oh, yeah. But my sisters and I have talked about how our, having our children was um, cathartic and healing ourselves because it gave us an opportunity to do everything that we wish they had done, our parents had done for us. I think the hardest thing about being a parent is forgiving yourself and going, you know what? I'm doing pretty good given the circumstances. One of the best, the most poignant advice I ever got from a therapist was, he said, if you do not forgive yourself, you will teach your children that they cannot make mistakes. The initial thing was like, yes, an onslaught of insults and like just making fun of everything I said or whatever. But then uh, we got to the point where they were mad that I was still trying to hang around with them. They would kind of walk around in a group and I would be a few paces behind them, like a satellite. And I have a very specific memory of after lunch, a bunch of the girls going to what they called the bookstore on our, in, on our school campus. Right. And there was one girl, Catherine, and she always had money. And so we all went there, but I walked behind them because I like, always did. And then we got in there and she bought everybody candy. And then, and I was at the end. And then she looked at me, and it was probably the first time she had talked to me in days. And she was like, not you. And I remember saying, I know. And I remember saying, like, I can't believe that I'm acknowledging that this is happening. You know, one of the beautiful things about art is that it draws in the misfits and the outcasts and the weirdos. Not a lot of well-adjusted people who seek out a career in the arts. But what art does require is an honesty and a self-examination. And so many people who have appeared on this show have followed unconventional paths to success. And sometimes that includes addiction. Here are some stories of people who have had to hit rock bottom, literally, to find the way out. All I wanted to do when I got to New York was make a living as an actor. And as soon as I started doing that, I go, let's, you know, I just got dumped by a girl. 
Animal House was a terrible influence on me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and um, I discovered the miracle of cocaine. How did you afford that? Well, commercials, unemployment checks. <laughs> but, I, I, you know, because Kids, I, I couldn't afford it. Don't, uh, so don't it follow was, uh, this career It path. was rare. Well, I, mean, I overly romanticized it because all the hot shots were taking it. And uh, it was scary, especially for me. I'm, I'm a hick from Missouri coming in, and gosh, and I just, I developed a love-hate thing with it immediately. You did? Uh, because, yeah, I was always broken. I was always scared. There were times when I would go into Central Park looking for a fight. You're kidding me. No. Just if anybody Just being drunk me. and wanting yeah. to... Oh, yeah. I was, I was at the bulletproof stage of alcoholism before I turned into the invisible man. What do you mean? Well, first it's fun. Then, after a while, you get bulletproof. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? Says who? Then um, I get really quiet and invisible. Nothing can hurt me. And just all these stages of drunkenness, like stages of grief. I'd get so heated up, but... Um, yeah, I was looking for trouble. And so. thank God I never found it. Thank God a lot of stuff never happened to me. I should have the good sense to believe that somebody's watching over me. But in my case, the ego is so fragile. I go, why would they bother? I just got lucky. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so when did alcohol enter the picture, and was alcohol sort of a way to, uh, to make those, those social things easier? Basically, I felt a little bit like an alien growing up. Like I was different, and human beings were different than me. Oh, you did. Oh, you, yeah, you, you yeah. felt like they've all got something, right? Or figured yeah, out something. Figured that... it out that I don't. I don't understand why we're doing this. So I had a couple different outlets. Like I had um, creativity, and then I had like alcohol and drugs, where I could be like just like oblivion, called what I call like non-being. And then you found out that like, oh, this this helps. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the answer. I mean, oh, for a was... lot of years, it was the answer because I remember coming into. Um, into New York and making, I had this big joke about being an alcoholic where like people would be like, you're an alcoholic. And I'd be like, I know. Like, eh. I'd be like, all my idols are alcoholics. Like, what are you talking about? Of course I'm an alcoholic. We're like, I remember going to like a, I went to like a dinner party with like all these like young professional, you know, like, and they were like, you, and there's this one woman who was talking to me and she was like, so you drink and you smoke and you, she's like, how can you be happy? And I was like, who's happy? <laughs> was there a moment that was like the crystallizing, uh, like, oh, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I was going to kill myself. And then, really? you know, I did, oh, yeah, yeah. But I didn't have the, uh, I had a cat. And I was, a, this is a funny thing, where, like, I actually had a, a baby cat. And I remember reading somewhere that if there's a dead body in an apartment, because I didn't have any friends, too, so my body would have stayed in the apartment for maybe weeks and nobody would have discovered had I, I paid my rent. And I was like, apparently dogs won't eat you, but cats will eat you. <laughs> they will eat your body if they run out of food. And I was like, wow, like, I don't want my poor cat to, like... <laughs> Jesus. You know what I mean? And so I was like, so that was the moment where I was like... Are you like, telling me that if you didn't have... A cat in your house, you maybe, would have killed yourself. Maybe. I mean, that could have been a ruse. But I did wake up the next morning, and I had a friend who'd been sober for a million years, and I called him, and I was like, 
hey man, like, you know, uh, you know, my life's in trouble. And he was like, why don't you get sober? And I was like, no, 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 man. It's like, it's like I just need it's a new like girlfriend. That. No, I need a girlfriend. He was like, why don't you get sober? And I was like, no, 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 man. I just need a new job. I, if I get a job. And he's like, why don't you get sober? And I was like, no, man, it's the jelly donuts. Like, I got to stop eating the jelly donuts. And then I'll be fine. He was like, why don't you get sober? And I was like, maybe I'll get sober. <laughs> the great Del Close once said about improv, that it's like trying to build a plane when you're already in the air. And I think there's never been a more poetic notion about a more undefinable art than improvisation. I've been fascinated by improv my whole life and did it for a while in high school until I was sort of laughed out of my student theater. And I think I've been living vicariously through my guests ever since because if you watch this show, you know we have a lot of improv actors on. And everyone tries to define it and the more you try to explain improv, the more mysterious it gets. And that's what I love about it. Here's Keegan-Michael Key telling us what he thinks improv is. People think that improvisation is moving forward. What improvisation really is, it's walking backward. And while I'm still looking at you, like right now I go, oh, I'm here with Sam Jones. Now as I back up, I see there's a light there. Oh, what's the light? Oh, that's a set. Oh, I'm on a set. Oh, so Sam Jones must be a person who works on a set. Then I keep backing up. I see this chair. I see that chair. I go, oh, he's an interviewer. Then I keep backing up to Nate and I go, oh, that's the sound man. What's this room? Oh, this is like a small show. It's backing up that gives you discovery. Even the larger worldview. Yes, the, as you back up, you can create a larger worldview. People think it's moving forward. People always go, I can't think that fast. No, 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 no. Don't think that fast. Just listen to the last thing he said. What do you need to be good at improv? At the end of the day, the one thing that you have to have is the ability to listen. Because uh, there's nothing, you're, you can't make anything off of what the other person's saying, your partner, you know, your teammate, whatever, unless you hear what they're saying. When I taught improv, there's a, you know, I used to say to my students, like, jump off the diving board. Because a lot of them are just, like, perched on the edge of it. You know, um, they even in a scene will, let's just say the scene is about, this is a good example, is like, we always say, shoot the deer, shoot the fucking deer. <laughs> because they're always, you see two, you know, students will always do this thing like, well, there he is. There, uh, <laughs> well, he's uh, a big one. <laughs> yeah, he's a big guy. Uh, I'm real nervous, uh, you know, uh, are you sure? Did you bring the bullets? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought you had them. Well, I do, you're just like, shoot the deer and deal with the deer. Hey folks, let's take a break from the show so we can hear from this week's sponsor, Warby Parker. Warby Parker was conceived as an alternative to the overpriced and bland eyewear available today. They thought that prescription eyewear shouldn't cost you more than a plane ticket or a new iPhone, and by circumventing traditional channels and engaging with customers directly through their website and retail stores, Warby Parker is able to provide high-quality, good-looking prescription eyewear at a fraction of the price. And you know, almost 1 billion people worldwide lack access to glasses. This means that 15% of the global population cannot effectively learn or work or even enjoy a book, which is crazy because glasses were invented 700 years ago. Think about that. We should be on top of this. Warby Parker partners with nonprofits like Vision Spring to ensure that for every pair of glasses sold, a pair is distributed to someone in need. They believe that everyone has a right to see. In addition to being a really socially conscious company, Warby Parker is also on the leading edge of technology when it comes to how to purchase glasses. 
They have the most amazing website. And after being on their website, I feel like every company could take a page out of Warby Parker's book when it comes to interactivity. They have this home try-on program where you can virtually try glasses on their website and it looks like you're wearing them. And then once you try a bunch of glasses and you find some you like, they have this home try-on kit. And the way that works is you can order five pairs of glasses and try them on for five days with no obligation to buy. That way, if you're kind of torn between a few frames, you can just get them all delivered to your house and see which ones work. And then you can ship the other ones back with a prepaid return shipping label. You just go to warbyparker.com slash off camera. You can take the quiz and order your free home try on. And now Warby Parker is also making contact lenses and they have these amazing Scout by Warby Parker contact lenses, which are comfortable, breathable and affordable. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. You can wear Scout by Warby Parker contact lenses for less than $1.25 a day. So go to warbyparker.com and you can order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. And then you can receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more at warbyparker.com slash off camera. So again, order the free home try-on program or request a trial of Scout contact lenses for just $5. Visit warbyparker.com slash off camera to learn more. Now back to the show. You know, while this show isn't known for its humor, there have been some unexpected moments of hilarity throughout the years. And we put together some clips to tickle your funny bone. So let's take a look. I like um, that song. Samber girl, it's so much. Dude, name that tune. That's all you needed. I yeah. didn't even say the right w- it's, words. It's September girls. Uh, September? Yeah, I can't sing that high though. Oh, never mind. Oh, that's the thing. It's September, boys got it bad. Yeah. But I thought it was, sometimes boys got it bad. Oh, really? Because it's like, girls have it bad. Yeah. But sometimes boys, boys have, have it bad. bad. Sure, sometimes. Makes sense. Meaning, sometimes boys... Get their heart broken. Right. So you don't have girls. And I thought those lyrics were much better. than when I found out, <laughs> no, it's September, boys got it bad. I'm like, what does that fucking even mean? Yeah, it does Sometimes mean boys have it bad is a deep lyric. What if this was the show right now? We haven't even I, I don't know yet. why it's not. Okay, let's go. Roll these things. <laughs> what is it about a grown man naked mm-hmm. that's so reliably funny? Um, I don't know if I even have an answer for that. Harpy Plaza. Hello. How you doing? Great. Does anyone ever call you the Plazinator? No. Audrey Playa? No. A, a Plaza meter? No. No. Well, those are three really good nicknames on the house. If you ever want to use them, just feel free. Thank you, Sam. Did you get called not good looking as a kid? Now, see, that is beautiful. Isn't it awfully nice to have a penis? Isn't it flightly good to have a dong? It's swell to have a stiffy. It's divine to own a dick. 
From the teeniest little tadger to the world's biggest prick. Have you ever heard of those actors that when they do a nude scene, sometimes they, they're like, I'll do it if these guys do it. And they have like, oh, you mean the whole crew is naked? Yeah. The boom guys Which all is of a like, sudden, you like, know what? I don't need to, but I get I need to see it. But I get it. If that makes you feel better, looking at those saggy balls, then all right. <laughs> but I. That's what we do here. <laughs> everybody's nude here, which I thought was really welcoming. Yeah. Well, we, we do our best <laughs> no to make you feel you, comfortable. You keep, you keep it a little chilly in here. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Nate doesn't like that we keep it chilly. I don't, I'm sorry to keep referencing your balls, Nate. But. <laughs> Um, Put your pants on. But they're adorable. No, I. They're so soft. Jenna vodka, Jenna vodka. Good news is it's all available to us at all times, you know, and that's the awesome thing about being an actor, or one of the awesome things. What do you mean it's all available to you? Like I could kill someone. (laughs) I could tear this place apart. I could. Make love to you right now. I could, you know, you know, it's all possible. I, I thought we'd done a lot on the show, but I, I realized that we've only scratched the surface. We could try. We could try it. I mean, could you make love to Nate first? Oh God, if you insist. If Henry Higgins is your sexual model, oh, mm. what are you saying mm. during, you know, the rain in Spain? It's everything I say is very well said. Yes. Fuck me. <laughs> Pinch. <laughs> my nipple. <laughs> the rain in Spain falls mainly in my butthole. <laughs> I have someone slowly drip water into my asshole. And then 2002 is when I did SNL. <coughs> Excuse me, one second. I've had this cough for like a week now. And um, we were like hugging and holding both hands. <laughs> for a long time, when he first greeted me, he held both my hands. I did. He coughed in my face. And he's like, it's so good to see you. And then, and then he I, I gave you a sip of my tea. Yeah, and you're like, you're yeah. like, try my tea. And I was like, but you're like, drink it from here. <laughs> wow, so here we are. You're here feeling pretty are. good about yourself, aren't you? Well, I, I, you know, I like to think I'm a good gambler. <laughs> <laughs> I, I make bets that I have a high probability of winning. Yeah, well, uh, I, I am guilty of loving my Dodgers so much that I just assumed yeah. they would beat the Red Sox, and I made this incredibly stupid wager with you. Yeah. Which was... Which was one of us was going to put on a full uniform, <laughs> and, and, and when the, the bet, they, it started to get really good when the shit-talking went back and forth, and you were like, and it, they're going to be cleats. Cleats. <laughs> 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 and I went, oh, man. <laughs> Is this dioptic? No. What were you thinking? That's anamorphic. Ah, fuck. <laughs> All right, last, don't you touch that. All right, here I go. Last question. <laughs> Those were funny. I could have been a comedian. What do you think, Nate? Well. No? Stick to the uh, amateur therapy here? All right, let's uh, move on to our next segment. You know, on this show, I love going back into the memory banks of the guests and finding out what their upbringing was like, how their relationship with their parents was, how they got along in school. And I'm especially fascinated by relationships with fathers. I had sort of a rocky upbringing and a tenuous relationship with my father for many years. And I think that I'm always trying to discover how other people's relationships with their fathers contributed to their success. And so here are some stories I've pulled together that really connected with me about fathers and sons. And dad, if you're watching, I love you, we're all good. Let's take a look at the clips. 
you, know, you, you sort of published a eulogy about your father. Uh-huh. And one line in particular got me, and it was you describing how near the end of his life when he had cancer, mm-hmm. you drove around and visited all the houses either of you had lived in. Yes. And the one that really got me that w- that that enabled me to kind of stop seeing him as this dad who disappointed me and more just like a guy who made a, the wrong choice we, we went in front of the apartment that me and my brother and my mom moved into when we left his house. And he goes, uh, we're looking at it, and it's a dump. And he goes, uh, I drove the couch over and I dropped it off and I, I, I left and I got to that light and I sat on the side of the road right there and I cried for four hours. I couldn't drive the car. I couldn't drive the car because I knew I had just driven away from something that I was never gonna be able to fix and it was, I blew it up, it was over. I drew, I drove away and I shouldn't have, and I couldn't go back and I couldn't drive home and I just sat there. And I was like, my fantasy was, you fucking dropped the couch, couch off, went to the bar and got some ass. Like I, I didn't <laughs> think that that happened. And oh man, I can only imagine what it's like driving away from your family for the first time. My father was, uh you know, he he was very undemonstrative. He had a he had a tough. My father, I got to cut him some slack. He had a rough time. His his dad left him when he was two years old, so he didn't have a father. So he had a he had a tough time, uh, uh, just showing showing any any kind of uh, uh, emotion. You know, he couldn't express if he was proud of me or not. Did he ever tell you that when you were young? <sighs> I have to say no. I mean, I know he loved us, but no, he could not. He could not say it. Did he pass away? He died. Yeah, he passed away eight years ago. Yeah, and I remember in the hospital, uh, he wasn't doing well, and I never knew when would be the last time. I remember leaving the hospital, and uh, you know, it was hard for me to say because it was hard for him to say. It was also hard for me to say. I, I was leaving. I go, all right, Dad, I'm going back to L.A. He goes, all right. And I, and I said, nope, I'm going to say it. I go, I love you, Dad. And he goes, I know you do. And that, that was it. That was his way of returning it. Yeah, I know you do. My dad kind of died in slow motion. And so we were, you know, we, the last year of his life, we moved back to Boston. And, and we were just in the hospital for a year. So we had a lot of conversations. And, uh, and one of the things he said was he wanted some of his ashes to go to Fenway Park. And I said, do you want me to see if I could maybe get him, you know, to the pitcher's mound or whatever? And he, and he goes, I put him in the box seats. He goes, put him in the seats. He goes, I never made it on the field. He goes, you're going to get swept up with like the fucking peanuts and cracker jacks. And he goes, I don't give a shit. <laughs> so I get a text from my brother during game one. And there was a picture of him and his two sons. And he said, I got this little spoonful of dad's ashes. But, I, you know, he and I had lived through this thing together. And he goes, I can't do this without you. And I said, are you fucking kidding me? I was like, we're in the World Series. You got the two best left-handed pitchers on the planet going against each other. And his two grandsons. And I said, just go for it. I said, I'm with you just like he is. And so that was... So that was so. This series had a lot of significance for us. So I hope that that yeah. mitigates some of your pain in wearing that that uh, that jersey because he he 
because this team, you know, this team, incredible team, like I watched probably every game last season because my dad was too weak to move, so that was all he could do. You got to watch baseball with him. We would sit there and watch baseball and he'd go in and out of sleep. And so he loved this team, so. It's snowing. I feel like somehow Santa has something to do with this. Well, that's our show. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And from all of us at Off Camera. To all of you, happy holidays. Happy holidays. folks, that's our show. And, you know, I think that went pretty well for the first time we ever attempted a wrap-up show. It's a little overwhelming to try to pull clips from over 220 hours of footage. But the goal there was to find examples of what off-camera can be at its best, at its most human, at its most curious. And, you know, we walked away from it going, well, there's certainly more best-of shows to be made with all of the clips that we couldn't fit into the first show. So I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope it inspires you to go to offcamera.com and dive deeper into our archives so you can watch as many clips as you want. You know, we have this off-camera television subscription service, and if you don't have the show on DirecTV, and if you don't have Audience Network, you can still see every minute of every episode we've ever done by simply going to offcamera.com, and for $4.99 a month, you can get our television subscription service which allows you unlimited access to every episode we've ever done to watch on any device of your choosing as many times as you like. So in other words, you can create your own best of show and it can be 18 days long. I think that's about right. 18 full days of content. That's pretty amazing. Anyway, go to offcamera.com, check it out. We worked really hard on this show, but we've worked really hard every week for many, many years to bring you these shows. So if you haven't seen all of them or if you're just... I don't know, a new listener or you're an actor that needs advice or you're a musician who needs some inspiration or you're a skateboarder who just wants to listen to Tony Hawk and Mike McGill and Steve Caballero or you're a motorcycle racer that wants to hear from Ricky Carmichael or you're a writer who wants to learn from Michael Connolly or, I don't know, any other of the hundreds of people and professions we've had on the show. Off Camera's your place and we are so happy to bring you this show now, I want to say a special year-end thank you to everyone that worked so hard all year, but that who worked especially hard on this show. Because we thought, well, this will be easy. We don't have a guest. But it turned out to be really intense, hard labor to put this show together. So first off, special thanks to Nathan Shields, our esteemed sound man and editor who pulled some all-nighters to put this together. I also want to thank Michaela Galvin, who went through every transcript to help Nate pull clips, and Crawford Shippey, who held the whole thing together with his exemplary producing skills. And Sasha Snow, who scoured the Los Angeles basin for all sorts of Christmas decorations and holiday trappings so that we can make the most festive set possible. And Matt Davidson, who hasn't made an appearance here for a long time since we had to fire him for, uh, well, 
Let's not get into it. The lawyers told us we can't discuss what exactly he did to get fired, but we brought him back for this show, and he did a great job with special effects, and he cleaned the toilets before he left. So thank you, Matt Davidson, and also Kara Johnson, who works every week on our transcripts and who turns everything we say into words on a piece of paper. Could not do this show without everyone listed. Also, a special thanks to Bill Marmer, who did additional editing on the show, and Amy Jones, who came back to off-camera to help us for this week. It was quite a week, and it's been quite a year, and I hope you all have a great holiday, and I'll see you next time off-camera.